Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Francois K. He's been in dance music since disco, and his studio credits run from Dinosaur L to Depeche Mode. That's all really just scratching the surface. I've always wanted to interview this guy, and finally got the chance a few months back in New York. Ahead of our chat, Francois suggested we don't just do another straight-up biographical interview. He's done plenty of those already. But talk instead about where his career has intersected with some key developments in music technology. This exchange divides into two parts. In the first, Francois takes us from his early studio experiments through to Pro Tools. In the second, we get a bit headier and talk about what these developments mean for the present and maybe the future. We run a bit longer than usual this week, but I'd say it's well worth it. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. An exchange with Francois K. up next. In 2015, if you're a kid who likes to DJ and you decide you want to make your own tracks, you pull open your computer, boot up some software, that's how you would get started. When you got started making music, it was obviously a much different process with very different equipment. Take me back to the beginning of your studio career. Well... I was uh, part of a series of bands when I was still in France. I was playing drums. For whatever reason, over the course of me, you know, being with these people, I seemed to uh, be the one that had a bit of an interest uh, to fiddle with the tape machines and multi-track and... I sort of remember when I came in 1975, came to New York, I had a tape with me that was already like sort of a multi-track of a thing we had recorded in France. And I, I was able, I was capable and I understood how to overdub, how to do what you used to call sound on sound, which was taking a very primitive two-track tape recorder and use one track as the source and record a new track as you were playing back the source, which allowed you to do sort of a primitive, you know, one layer at a time building. And uh, I guess um, for me, my first introduction to these kinds of technologies came because I found people, I mean, I was like basically arriving in New York in 75 and with very little money, but I found people that were willing to give me tape recorders. They had no use for them or they were too complicated and, you know, you could just buy tape and, you know, start recording stuff from the radio and this and that. And I had two tape recorders by 76 and I would record from one to the other, do like weird 
effects, pulling the tape out of the transport and making it go in at fast speeds. All sorts of manipulations and back and forth echoing between the two tape decks and things like that. I, I No one ever, you know, showed me any of that. I was just sort of fiddling. I had time on my hands. And even though I was still technically supposed to be a drummer, I found myself spending a fair amount of time doing little things like this. Just, as I said, either recording the radio or recording from records. And then I, I decided to kind of try and focus a little bit more on becoming a DJ because being a drummer was really, really damn hard. It was very tough. I could get jobs, but they weren't really bringing enough money for me to support myself on them. And um, I thought that uh, after being hired to play in a club where I was drumming along with the, the DJ, it looked to me like that DJ job was a lot easier to do than being the drummer. <laughs> and required a lot less fighting as in competition, as in constantly having to uh, elbow your way past other people in order to get to what you wanted because there was so much going on in terms of live band activity back in those days. And uh, compared to that, DJs, there were so few of them and they were, I, I kind of felt they were as a, at a disadvantage. If I had to go to an audition for drummer, you know, I'd be facing a hundred people plus, many of whom were session players and really, really experienced, far more than I was. And when I went to an audition as to become DJ, I saw two people and then myself. And they knew nothing about music. And I, I had not only just a already a reasonable theoretical and practical background in music, but I also knew about electronics, as I was saying, even though only those tape decks, you know, and cut the long story short, it really was very easy for me to get jobs as DJs back in 76 because so few people had actually any sort of knowledge on how to make it more than just playing a track and playing another track. and. I picked up really quickly on the the people I saw that were doing beat mixing, and I managed to work that out by practicing on my own at home with one track on the tape recorder and one track on the turntable and syncing them by ear with the delay between the, the tape and, and the record, but that was just more of a challenge, and I managed to work that out very easily. So that by the time I really started getting a few gigs in the clubs, the next logical thing was really to figure out a way to become a better DJ, as in <laughs> get more money <laughs> from my gigs. And the way to do that, I thought would be to start doing what I had seen a couple other people do, which they were going to this place called Sunshine Sound that was making acetates dub plates, right? And some of these were like sort of primitive medleys where people had done edits of things. And I thought to myself, well, I already have the, the tape decks and all that. I already have some of the records. All I need is to do the editing. So I didn't really know how it was done, but I figured this, I have nothing to lose. I just record bits and I would take a pair of scissors and scotch tape and I tried to 
the tape back together with the, the scotch tape, not not anything fancy. It was very, very primitive. And it worked. I was like, wow, this is cool. So actually, I did an edit of uh, this drum intro from a record called Happy Song by uh, Rare Earth that I had seen Walter Gibbons do live when, when I was, you know, Walter was the DJ who was playing the records when I was the drummer on the dance floor. And he got me, he turned me on to quite a lot of, you know, things because drums was kind of his specialty as a DJ. He had this thing where he was saying drums for days or whatever. He was like, you know, really enamored with drumming. So Happy Song was just a 20-second little piece at the beginning of a track, and he would turn it into this long, unending, you know, drum orgy. And uh, I decided to replicate that on the edit. I brought it to the guy at Sunshine Sound to make an acetate, and he cut it for me, and he was very happy. I started making more of those, and then because I, I brought it to him and I explained to him how I did the edit, he was like, well, really, it would be better if you used this thing called an edit block, you know, where you put the tape in and you actually use a razor blade to cut it cleanly at an angle. And there's a special kind of tape called splicing tape you use. And I was discovering all that. Those are all new things to me. I was like, wow, this is like massive upgrade. So I went back to my place and I... I had enough money to buy an editing block and razor blades and splicing tape and I started making more edits and I would bring those edits back to him to cut them into uh, dub plates and that way when I started going to auditions I had a few things with me that I could throw on that were much more concentrated than you could really do as a DJ, just going to a club you'd never played in before, sometimes the turntables were very sketchy. Some of them didn't even have pitch control or anything. It was really difficult to beat mix well when you didn't have proper gear. And with these acetates, I was able to come in and I would throw that stuff on and people would just go nuts because it was well cut, always right on beat and... You know, I don't think that the club owners or anyone knew what I was doing. It was just like, it, it sounded really good. And more often than not, I would immediately get the job because the people that, you know, were competing were just sort of either wannabe amateur DJs or casual DJs, but not real, like, professionals. It sounds like you were able to bring your own spin to it. I mean, you were bringing stuff that at the time you were not able to do in the booth, into the booth, you just kind of had to do it in advance. Well, and the reason for that, you know, a lot of times people glamorize, everyone tends to always glamorize how stuff happens. Oftentimes, even though it doesn't sound very glamorous, I would say that many of these things happen because of a circumstance that forces you to take measures or steps towards remedying whatever bad situation you're in. In my case, it was called roof over my head and food on the table. And doing these things, I 
quickly saw that it allowed me to get myself a massive upgrade. I would go to a DJ contest, a competition between three or four DJ, like a battle. There was this drag queen club called JJ Knickerbrocker on West 45th Street near Times Square. And um, I showed up there for, you know, every first Thursday of the month they had a DJ battle. And some other DJs showed up and I, I played some of these and, you know, turntables had no pitch control and it was really difficult. But with these plates, I just threw it on and, you know, I think pretty much I won two out of the three times I, I did the contest. And more importantly, some people saw me play there and they immediately offered me a job at a much bigger club because everybody was very impressed with these things. So there was just a necessity that I think really pushed me to do it. And sure enough, by the fourth or fifth time that I went back to Sunshine Sound, I mean, it was expensive to get those those dub plates cut. It was $25. 1975, $25 is quite a lot of money. It might be like 75 today or 100 or something. But anyway, the fourth time, and the guy, Frank Tremarco was his name, the owner. He was the one doing all the, the, the cutting. And he heard my stuff and he said, you know, this is really good stuff. I mean, compared to most things I get, it, it's quite impressive. And he goes, well, you know, I'll, I'll make you a deal. You leave me a copy. Let me make a copy of the tapes that you bring me. If I could try to play it for my customers and they like it, I will cut another acetate for them and sell it to them. And I will give you a little commission on it. And uh, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, why not? I mean, you know. And before you know it, the next time I went back to Sunshine Sound, he had $75 for me. And I was like, whoa, what's that all about? And that was only the very beginning. And he said, well, you know, I have a couple ideas here. What about this song here and that song there? You know, that a lot of DJs ask for an edit of that. I'm sure if you did an edit of this, it would be a big seller and then you could get more commission. And so I kind of took his advice and... Um, before you know it, I go back again a couple of times later, and there's $200. And I go like, wow, this is like amazing. I mean, it was really helpful. You know, I didn't expect that I was going to make money from doing this. I was really doing it for myself because I felt when I was playing, it gave me not only something unique to do, but it also kind of helped me stand above the rest of the competition so, you know, it was like sort of giving me a lot to look at as far as studying song structure and understanding how the pace of club music needed to be going in order to make the dance floors happy and all that. And soon enough, from all of that, I landed a job in one of the most major clubs in New York in 1977 which was basically the spot right under Studio 54. It was another club called New York, New York. And they had like a massive customized sound system with onboard effect processing, all sorts of like amazing things. I auditioned there and of course I got the job immediately. 
once I was able to play there and, you know, they, they really gave me a lot of work. Sometimes I would end up spending four or five nights. This was right as disco was about to hit. So it was like a surfer catching that perfect wave. And suddenly, a few months later, in the winter of 77, exactly as Saturday Night Fever soundtrack is exploding, I'm playing in basically one of the hottest clubs in Manhattan with Andy Warhol and all these celebrities hanging out pretty much every night. And more importantly, the legitimacy of, you know, having a letterhead from the club, being able to go to the record pools and say, I'm the DJ for New York, New York. And suddenly I started getting all the promos from everyone. And like I said, I mean, the, the mixer was a customized GLI mixer that was one of a kind built especially for New York, New York. And um, I had access to like phasers and flangers and there was a way if I wanted to, to also maybe do a little bit of tape delay and special effects while I was DJing. No one was really using these things, but again, because I had this sort of curious mind and I was always kind of interested in these these sorts of things from the days I was manipulating my two tape decks and doing strange weird noises between them and stuff it was kind of a natural thing for me to get into that so I managed to uh, use that as a platform to get more ideas to do more of those medleys and as I was you know, making the rounds and going to some record labels for promos during the week. I stopped at one of them and they offered, uh, based on the comments I was making about the music, they were just testing some records and playing me new tracks and going, well, what do you think? And this and that. And based on what I said, they went like, well, <laughs> we got to hire this guy. So they they decided to give me a job as A&R, which I really had no idea what it meant. I, I was hoping it was involving restaurants, but in the <laughs> R part, but you know, I found out soon enough when A&R was, and the first thing I did was to go in the studio and they sent me, now this time it was not two track anymore, but multi-track. So uh, it was a whole different thing to do a proper remix from the original master multi-track tape. I wanted to ask, in the early days of putting together these these edits and these medleys, were you familiar with Jamaican music with sound system culture at this point? Not very much. Because no. it sounds like there's kind of a lot of overlap there between no. what you were doing. I, I was basically into Hendrix, some sort of fusion, and a lot of jazz and funk. That's really what I was listening to. It would be like Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, Coltrane, Hendrix, Santana, Jeff Beck, you know, and then things that were gravitating around that, as well as maybe sometimes uh, a few sort of different records. But reggae was kind of really, really completely separated. And it was not something we were very much exposed to at all. At least at, at that time, I wasn't. I was looking to find all sorts of cool music, but most of what I got was soul, was R&B, funk, you know, like, you know, the Brothers Johnson or, you know, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, 
war and things that had maybe a little more to do with jazz, like say that track that Johnny Hammond did, uh, Los Conquistador Chocolates, that, you know, I was into Groover Washington. I was, yeah, a lot of Herbie Hancock related things and, you know, that sort of sound. So that kind of never really merged itself into what I was doing in clubs because the club music was much more specific even back in those days. So I was uh, in the summer of 78, uh, I was sent in the studio to do some remixing. And of course, um, it was very daunting because I had never been behind a, a proper console. And I decided to uh, take the only approach I knew, which was to be very methodical about it. And I requested to first go in the studio for a listening session. And I laid out a complete chart of the song that I was supposed to remix, which means I would... I actually didn't do it at the studio. What I did is I, I went and I recorded all the tracks on a two-track tape deck, like, say, the drums on the left, the guitar on the right, and then another pass, the bass on the left, the keyboards on the right, then another pass, the percussion on the left, the horns on the right, and then another pass, the vocals on the left, and so on. And that way, I was able to go back to the office later and listen to those and write down the exact musical structure of how the song went. And I was able to highlight exactly not only just the, the different sections, but also to have exact notes as to where there was a good drum roll, where there was a great guitar lick, where the percussion was really, really dope, or where there were some fabulous vocals that I could do something with. So that I spent maybe 30 or 40 hours back at the office going over that. So by the end, I had like this huge chart with all my tracks and all the notes and all the bars and all that. So I knew exactly where anything was and all the parts of interest. And funnily enough, when I look at a Pro Tools screen, it looks exactly like that, but I sort of did my own screen. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny that you, yeah. you know, there was no model for doing this no. necessarily you just immediately thought, well, I better stay organized. It's the only way I could do it because I I really wanted to be able to catch all the good bits. I mean, I certainly knew from other remixers, like people like Tom Moulton or whoever was listening to, that they were obviously stripping down the same elements, the same parts of the song, but they were taking out certain things and editing them. And I was already prepared to for all that because I had done all the editing. So I was really thinking in terms of sections and planning ahead how I was going to make a longer intro, how I was going to develop a breakdown and some other parts in the middle instead of just going straight like the original producer did and all that. By the time I came back for the actual mix session, I probably already had spent two or three days studying what I was going to do. And then the engine, it was just a matter of telling the engineer what we were supposed to be doing because that was my job as the remixer is not necessarily to be hands-on and do everything as much as it was to tell the engineer exactly what needed to be done and the engineer's name was Bob Blank he was part of the studio called Blank Tapes he was actually quite well known 
because he had done all these other projects for all these, you know, well-known remixers or big projects, and he was quite capable. And, uh, you know, I basically left the studio with a bunch of unedited takes that corresponded to the pieces that I wanted to edit. But because studio time was so limited, I felt that it was probably better to spend my time developing all the sections I wanted to do and have more time to create more exciting and special, unique sections. There was no automation. There was Everything had to be reset and redone by hand every time and run by hand. And I basically had sort of more or less a plan on what I wanted to accomplish, but I didn't want to waste the time at the studio with the multi-track just doing edits and trying things. I kind of figured that this would work, that would work. And so I, I get a whole bunch of takes of the, you know, mixed downs, pieces that didn't really match. They were just a bunch of things that I had in my head I was going to do. And then after the studio session was over, I took all these two tracks back to my to the office. Actually, I didn't have a tape deck there at Prelude to... Uh, Prelude was the label I was, was doing this for. I went into the editing room, which was obviously very cheap. They could spend hours and hours there at the studio and not break the bank. And then I, I proceeded to edit together all the parts that I liked and sort of piece together a rough structure of the song. And then from there, eliminate all the redundant bits, make sure my edits were all on time and all that. So I ended up with a master that was uh, very satisfactory. And by the time we went to mastering and to get it tested, I, I cut a couple of acetates that I started bringing around and the reaction was incredible. I mean, like people were flipping out over this song. It was called Push Push in the Bush. And uh, I remember bringing it to Paradise Garage and I had never really met Larry Levant personally we were sort of introduced, but not so deeply. And when I gave him this, he tried it out and he got an amazing reaction at the garage and everywhere where it was played, everyone was agreeing that this thing should be done and pressed up as soon as possible. They even went to the unusual step of remastering the album and deleting the album version from the the album to put my remix on there because they felt that was really the version that was going to sell the thing. They never published sales figures, but from what I understand, it sold well over a million copies. Because of that, the uh, owner of Prelude, who was really kind of taking care of all that creative side of things, felt that I really should be going in the studio and working on any project you know, that they could get me involved with because it seems like when I'm doing things like that, I'm able to contribute something that is tangible, that really made a difference for their the, the amount of sales that they were having and so on. So it started pretty much being that as A&R, for most people when they do A&R for a record label, it's really signing acts and finding new music. But the way I was doing it was, it was more like I was an in-house mixer or production consultant. I did start bringing some new music to Prelude for signings, but 
most of my time there was spent being in the studio. So if you fast forward, say, a year and a half, I was basically spending my entire life in studios. By 1980, I was more or less spending... 80-hour weeks continuously in the studio, and whatever time I wasn't at the studio, I was either playing at New York, New York, which I, I ultimately quit because I, I didn't have time to still DJ every night. And it started propelling me into a whole different mindset. I, you know, even though my first few sessions I was not very comfortable with doing anything myself, and I had to let the engineer do it. By eight, 1980, Bob Blank, when I was working at Blank Tapes, he would just fuck off in the other room to do another project. So he could, you know, get paid for working with me while he wasn't there, and also go and do another session in the other studio. So, you know, he was very busy, and he goes like, yeah, yeah, don't worry, you got it. You, you're good, right? Okay, I'll see you later. And he would basically leave me to my own devices to do what I had to in the studio by myself, sometimes including the patching, which in the beginning I, I really wasn't very good at, but no matter what, because I had no choice. I mean, you know, I could have bitched, and I said, no, you got to stay here. I don't know what to do. But it's like, no, no, you're going to take time. You got to figure out your arrangement and how you want the mix to go. And one thing leading to another, and by default, I kind of had to uh, learn to at least get the basics of how that stuff was done, even though I, I never really liked it. So that was at blank tapes. Then I also started working at other studios like Sigma Sound where it was much more structured and they had staff engineers there that took their job a lot more seriously because they they felt they were very dedicated and they were trained by uh, the owner, Joe Tarsia. Being engineer at Sigma was like kind of a, a big deal. And all the people that who were working there were all extremely talented. Uh, I remember names like, say, certainly Michael Hutchinson, Jim Duggerty, uh, Jay Mark, who all these guys probably mixed half the catalog for Philadelphia International, like all the MFSB and Teddy Pendergrass and all these concerts. Or they were involved in some of those records back in the Philly studios, but they moved to New York because there was more mixing going on in New York for commercial clients. The Philly Sigma was more, you know, catering to Philadelphia International projects, not exclusively, but a large percentage of their activity was related to that. Whereas in New York, there was very little of it going on. It was all more for major labels. And uh, so I suddenly became exposed to a whole different tier of engineering excellence. Sigma had the best equipment, the prototypes of gear that wasn't available yet early, automated consoles, customized in-house tweaked pieces of gear that, does stu that did stuff that was absolutely amazing. And by working there, I suddenly had access to people who understood this and knew how to leverage all these incredible, you know, gadgets, so to speak, into incorporating, you know, whatever I needed to make a mix that was really exciting and special. So 
I was basically living in that environment. And then yet I started working at other studios like uh, Boris Midney's uh, studio called Eras, E-R-A-S. That was also more or less like a giant pair of headphones where the huge speakers were right above your head. And uh, each time brought his own set of challenges, but it, it turned out to be that um, it forced me, sometimes by default, like said, Eris, even though the engineers were decent, they really didn't understand what I wanted to do or they were too slow to help me out because, you know, we had limited time for sessions and they would take forever to get me what I wanted. And it, it worked out to be that sometimes, even though I probably couldn't get as good of a sound as they would have, I could get on with it really quickly and I could not lose focus on what I was trying to get done and keep sort of the general idea of what mix I was trying to put together. And there are a lot of records from that time period that I did all by myself where basically the guys were just standing around waiting, you know, or helping me marginally, but not very much. And I kind of did it all on my own. I, I didn't really like that, but I was kind of forced to do this because otherwise I felt it was going to linger on forever and we're not going to get everything done the way it really felt like it should be. And I think there's a, something to be said for not losing momentum when you, you work on, on a project. So records like Sharon Red, Beat the Street, or Gail Adams, Your Love is a Lifesaver, or Stretching Out, or Rod, Shake It Up, Do the Boogaloo, all these mixes I did, I pretty much did on my own by myself. The good thing about working in, a, in another studio than Sigma or like blank tapes was that every time they had different equipment, different consoles, and it kind of led me to understand instead of just learning to use one brand of console or one piece of equipment, I could learn all these different versions of it, which led me to maybe understand a little bit more in depth the thing about routing and signal flow and how to patch effects and use them to the, you know, for what they were best. And I started spending an inordinate amount of time learning the effects, early harmonizers from Eventide, all the different echo chambers, all the different delays. And Lexicon was just coming up with uh, some really exciting gear, like multiple clusters of delays or digital reverbs like the 224. Lexicon 24 reverb was really a big departure for everyone because suddenly you had like early digital reverbs that were able to be incorporated, whereas before it was mostly old plates and uh, chambers and uh, all these kinds of things. So, I mean, you know, it turned out to be that um, even though, as I was saying, I didn't necessarily very much enjoy having to do everything myself and not getting paid for it because I was really getting paid to be the mix producer or the person who got the mix done. But most people that I knew, and even when I could, we all wanted to have an engineer and have an assistant engineer and a whole support staff to do these things for us so we could stay focused on uh, what we were supposed to be paid for, which was really to have the idea of what the mix was supposed to be and 
not lose perspective by getting too involved in the minute details of how the mix was going to be sounding and dealing with technical problems and all that. And up to that point, all of that was done on 24-track tapes, which means one tape, no synchronization, and more or less like easy to deal with than this whole thing evolved into a situation where or by 81 and 82 there were a few drum machines that started to appear and a few sequencer systems that were able to lock to tape say for example uh, Oberheim has this had this thing called the system where they had a sequencer that could read a tone from tape and lock to it and also control the drum machine. Things of that nature, production really changed and some producers really felt they wanted to take advantage of uh, more than 24 tracks, which led to uh, bigger sessions, bigger consoles, and the dreaded arrival of synchronizers with time code between two tapes. So now you had two multi-tracks and uh, they would each have 22 tracks because two of them were kept for the synchronization and that gave you you know about 44 tracks of usable audio you're describing this extremely rapid sort of escalation of studio technology i oh, mean yeah. we're, we're going from basically you're working with tape machines to suddenly you're working with you know 44 tracks but all that was at still, once. Tape machines. still tape machines right yeah. but the capacity of studios right. was just expanding so fast i mean how was that affecting your mix ideas, your well, remix ideas? The point was uh, by 1982, or is it early 83? I mean, Sigma had custom automation systems. So to do automation, you needed another two tracks to keep moving the data back and forth between data track A and B. And every time you would do a pass, you would be reading data A and updating the moves that you had made on the console and writing your updates and transferring the data from A into data B. And that could only go on for so many passes because there was a delay every time you did it. So your moves would start being offset. So maybe at best you had 15 to 20 passes before it started degrading beyond usability. So Sigma was definitely ready for automated sessions, which meant repeatability, as long as you didn't have a lot of incredible edits to do and that most likely you were doing the body of the song or songs that were well-structured and you could mix without you know, thinking of edits later down the line. It was pretty smooth to work. All the engineers at Sigma were completely versed in the automation system. I learned at least the basics of how to use it so that I, I could also add my own moves. But mostly, once it went up to larger track counts, like 40 over 40 tracks, it's just a bigger console, same automation, no big deal, no real difference. But other studios, they didn't really have access to this level of customized technology as Sigma did. Even though certain studios had access to automated consoles, they didn't work very well. They're very clunky. And most times I wasn't using them. But then in 1982 or late 82, 
Right Track Studios installed the first SSL console in New York. And um, when Right Track commissioned that console to be installed, I think I was maybe the first or the second customer to do a mix on it. It was a completely different experience. I mean, the SSL console's design was like miles above what anyone else had dreamed of. You had one integrated noise gate and compressor per channel, so which means there was no patching required. You could instantly clean up your track or, you know, goose it a little bit. And it had like all these other features that made it incredibly easy for mixing. And the automation for the SSL was absolutely like miles above anyone else thus far. People talk about these early SSL consoles as changing music. I mean, it changed well, the, yeah, the sound I mean, of music. Did you is, see that potential? The thing is, everything was time code based. So the automated data was never getting lost as it was with the earlier types where it kept getting transferred between two tracks on the tape machine and delayed every pass was, you know, a little later and a little later kind of thing, even if it was only one millisecond. Once you had SSL, you had basically an infinite number of passes. You could keep tweaking and, you know, working on your automation. But also you had as many mixes as you wanted to create. So you could create a section A mix and then go over the same part of the song and do a section B mix. And early automation did not afford you such things because you could only have one final track. And that was it. With the SSL, you could do like section you know, sectional approach to the mix and say, oh, that's going to be my intro mix. And then you go back over the same part, but you say, now this is the body, yet it was made from the same part. And then you print them and you edit them together. But I mean, the, the revolution, I think, came from the fact that a lot of stuff was integrated in the console that previously, it was an inline console, which means that you could do recording and monitoring on the same channel. A lot of consoles up to then were what you call split consoles that um, had a recording section and a separate monitor section on the side, like Neve consoles were like that. And that made it much more cumbersome and less flexible. And certainly as far as the routing, the SSL came pre-built with 32 buses and, you know, all these aux sends and everything that, that it was like, you know, a lot of other consoles had similar things, but the way SSL integrated all and having all these on board, you know, ready to go, nothing to do. Just walk in, you put the on button on the compressor and the gate and it's there. And suddenly you have a usable, cleaned up channel without even, you know, spending all this time patching an external device and setting it. And, you know, it, it was an incredible jump forward in terms of integration and usability for basically the engineers. I mean, I don't think the producers really cared. And to the, at that time, there were certainly many people who much preferred working on Neve consoles because they sounded warmer and, you know, they had a, that transformer sound that a lot of people had come to love. But the SSL, more than anything, it offered what you call total recall. And that was a feature where you could have the console memorize and allow you to recall the entire console, all the parameters, 
all the EQ settings, all the sense settings, all the fader settings that were not automated, all the buses assignments, anything that you had, your mic pre-level, whatever, it was all, you know, a snapshot was taken into the, the storage, the external memory for the session. And you could have multiple recalls. So even if you change things between different sections of a song or you wanted to stop working on something and come back to it two days later, you could. Whereas up to that point, the only way these things were done were with, you know, manual write-ups like Sigma had these giant sheets where the assistant had to spend hours writing down each setting manually. And of course, there was good margin of error and so on. So... It was kind of a big leap forward. It'll, SSL allowed people to work faster and also allowed them to work in pieces rather than, you know, just committing right there and then, which, you know, you could argue was both good and bad because it allowed a lot of people to procrastinate, whereas before they, they had to make up their minds. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like from a very early stage in your studio career, you sort of understood the importance of going in and executing getting it done. And I can see how these developments in the console technology could make that easier. But for some people, it could also lead them astray. I mean, you have so many possibilities now. But it was, you know, large scale format consoles. They went up to 56 or 64 input frames. It certainly was no problem accommodating a 48 track session, which was basically two 24 track tapes synchronized together with the use of a the dreaded synchronizers that never worked very well, took a long time to get up locked to where they were considered to be one tape. It was messy, but we we dealt with it. And I guess, um, you know, all this stuff was uh, pretty mature. And by the mid-80s, even though MIDI had arrived and people such as myself started using external synchronization of sequencers and samplers and other devices to the tapes. There were no real challenges to that. Most big projects, they would come in, it's tape. You know, if you had a big album project like Foreigner or like say at Right Track Recording, they were doing a lot of Bruce Springsteen mixing and you know, whatever, Carly Simon, all the big artists of that time, they were all coming in 48-track tapes. And I was the only joker that was kind of bringing in all these synchronizing devices and sequencers. And, you know, bringing a computer to the studio in 1985 was kind of very unusual. People were looking at you a little strange because nobody really understood computers back in 1985. But we... we depended on that to do what we were doing. So I I was doing quite a few sessions like that, like say certainly craft work as well as others where I was getting all these parts recorded, but instead of recording the parts to the tape, I was recording the parts into the sequencer and playing them back live from the instruments, from the synthesizers or from the drum machines or whatever. I mean, when I liked it, I would then just commit it to tape because it was probably easier to do. But, you know, there was this dichotomy where a lot of the big studios were kind of not against this technology, but they 
they sort of thought of it as like, you know, not a joke, no, but they didn't take it seriously. What you took seriously was the big, you know, established engineers, like, and ways of working that all were pretty much very conservative and studios like the Power Station and Right Track and Sigma and all that, they were all trying to serve the customers that were booking the big album projects and were spending massive amounts of time recording vocals and guitars and drums and all live things, but that was all changing. And uh, I became a little bit frustrated with all this not being served right in my mind because even though, I mean, the, the studios themselves, they were doing whatever they could to help me. Every time I had a session, I ended up having an entire suite of equipment that needed to be set up and broken down because they, they refused to keep it because there was no place for all this MIDI and synthesizer gear in their mind. The studio was a place where you made music. You didn't do electronic stuff. I understood why. I mean, obviously the studio is a multi-purpose room. It's like when you have an event space, you don't want to keep one type of speaker, one type of decoration, because you could have any other event coming after you. But yet I, it kind of led me to think that as a producer, it was really frustrating. And I started formulating plans that perhaps, even though I had a nice little studio at home, I maybe should build a proper recording studio for my own use where I could have all these MIDI and, you know, synchronized device and electronic music production devices all available. And they would never be broken down because they could stay in the room all the time. And that way it would make everything more stable, more dependable, and I could work much more quickly and all that. And I kind of looked at it. It sort of made sense to me at, at that moment that because I had so much work and I was constantly getting, you know, more sessions and more demand for, you know, can you also do this project besides these other two projects you're doing this week and all that. It felt like if I had this, you know, I could pretty much keep it, keep it filled up with my own work. Was there anybody else who was working on a similar tip to the one that you were on, incorporating a lot of electronic gear into I this? Think Arthur Baker so got frustrated the same way I did, or maybe for different reasons, but, you know, Arthur Baker did uh, this place called Shakedown Sound that was basically more or less along the same lines. He wanted to be able to control the environment where he was working in. And then... I started hearing of a couple of studios like in Long Island City or I think Powerplay Studio. or There were a couple of places like that that started being a little bit more along those lines and including catering to some of the hip-hop clients that didn't want the same thing that the big rock clients demanded. But I had already acquired quite a lot of gear because some of the exotic type of processors I wanted were not easily available. The rental companies didn't have them. They would break down, this, that. I figured, well, why don't I just buy a couple of these things so that way it's my personal little rack. When I show up at the session, I have my own gear. I don't have to depend on other people. And before you know it, it's just like with DJs when they accumulate, you know, records. And before it's, before you know it, be 
from one crate, it becomes two crates, becomes a wall, becomes a room, and so on. And the same with the with the recording gear, really. Uh, before I knew it, it was not one rack or two racks, but like an entire van worth of racks. And I was thinking to myself, and synthesizers, and, you know, computers, and all sorts of things. Well, I already have quite a lot. I set it up in my room. I had a loft where I was working. This was in 85. We're doing the uh, craft work, post-production, album sequencing, editing, all sorts of things at my place. And it didn't really look very far-fetched for me to transform that into a studio, which was downtown, but I didn't really like the spot. And I wanted to be more in the neighborhood where all the other studios and all the rental companies and the record labels were. So I decided to go find some space in the West 50s. And um, I settled on a, on a place that had just been vacated at the top of the building right above Studio 54. At the beginning of 1986, I decided to uh, take some big loans and hire a staff of people, which I was in position to do because I, I was making, you know, the income from all my remixing and production career was enough that I could get that started. And then I went to a, a proper sort of leasing company. More, It's more like personal banking, really. And I just showed them my plans, explained what I wanted to purchase, you know, got into an arrangement where I basically borrowed, you know, a very, very large sum of money in order to... Uh, put together at least one room in the space that I was renting. And that would be, you know, a legal space where I can really do commercial work. And, you know, it's not like at your house where you're not supposed to do this and that, which had like proper electrical service and everything that was, you know, supposed to come with trying to put together a recording studio operation. Well, to spare you the details, we did open at the beginning of 1987 and immediately, you know, managed to put a lot of my work in there, find other clients. I didn't realize that it was going to mean that I had to have a staff of five people full time to pay every week. And that was quickly becoming a major, major problem. And of those five people, and including having a studio manager that had to do scheduling and book sessions and find customers and we had to advertise and solicit, you know, and I kind of put my finger in that particular machinery. It was impossible to get out because I had all these loans. I had to take even additional loans to buy more gear and upgrades and fast forward three years later and it's 1990 and I've just mixed uh, Depeche Mode's uh, Violator album and now I have three studios because the one studio was not really enough. People wanted a separate space where you could just do recording. We moved the original console from the first studio down to the recording room, and I decided to buy an SSL in 1990, or 89, actually. It was delivered in 90. We took delivery of the SSL console. And then I also had another studio that was more like an edit room and for myself. So I had three studios and a staff of 20 people. <laughs> it's a bit ironic, isn't it, that you start this thing to make the whole process less complicated and it ends up coming up with all of these new complications. Well, you see, the way these things work, right, is that once you have a m momentum, 
with a company like that. The great thing for me was that once we worked at booking it and we were with 20 people, I had not one manager, but two, like a manager and his assistant, three techs on staff, pretty much 24-hour maintenance around the clock, you know, receptionists, accounting. I mean, it was like a real full-fledged thing. We had training sessions for the assistants. I mean, it was, you know, I had, but once that momentum was really keeping things moving forward and we had a lot of clients and a lot of connections with all these labels and constantly being able to fit in new things, then it became a situation where I also had the windfall of having all this downtime when there were no sessions and no customers, I could go in and do my own work for free instead of having to pay for it elsewhere. I'm not necessarily saying it was a good thing, but it sort of balanced itself out. It was certainly a big headache to have to basically earn $100,000 a month just to make ends meet when it got to that level and constantly, you know, stay abreast of all the new gear and plan out my purchases for another lease, for another series of upgrades and you know, customers are constantly complaining about not having enough power, not enough processing, not enough this, that. We became one of the first studios because we had this whole electronic music orientation. And of course, my work with a lot of bands like Kraftwerk and Depeche Mode and all that was all based on a lot of electronic instruments. The way the studios were wired and unlike these other more traditional studios like the Hit Factory, Power Station, and Right Track, who had Sigma as well, they all had much more money and much more expertise than I ever did, but they kind of were in a more traditional mold. And my the niche of the studio was called Axis Studios. Our niche was to be able to provide people with services for electronic music production where... They didn't need to reinvent the wheel every time they walked into the room. We had most everything ready to go. All my staff understood uh, synchronization of sequencers and electronic music production tools to the tapes that were at the main state. So a lot of people could come in and work very quickly on sessions. I mean, there was another studio called Quad that also started doing that, but... I think we were we're doing really well with that. And I had become um, quite fond of a program called Sound Designer that DigiDesign started selling in 1988. And uh, Sound Designer quickly evolved into something that was more than two tracks. So by 1992, I took delivery of our first Pro Tools system which was a four-track, one interface, four-track in, four-track out system. That immediately, it might have been 93, I forget exactly, but I, I remember starting to really do a lot of projects that had to do with digital editing, like in 91, 92, 93. By the time we got Pro Tools, it started being a whole different way of working. It was very limited because Pro Tools was like, you know, 
first it was four tracks only, then you can stack a couple of these four track interfaces to make it into an eight track system or beyond that. But we had the support staff, we had the knowledge, we had the environment that was conducive to having Pro Tools in the control rooms, which most other studios never had. First of all, they thought it was a joker thing and their clients were, you know, big, you know, rock stars and all that. And they don't take that stuff seriously. They, but we depended on Pro Tools and soon enough, they were, you know, much better audio interfaces available. And it was easy to uh, see a 24 track session going on and synchronize that to the tape machines. But before you know it, the tape machines, some producers started saying, well, why am I bothering to transfer to tape? Why don't I just stay in Pro Tools? And this was around like 1997, 1998, where I started seeing that technology was moving so fast. All this, the investment that I had been making in all these incredibly expensive pieces of gear, like the console, you know, the console alone, it got to the point where to upgrade my mix room to a newer console than the SSL, which I had all this time, I would have to spend three quarters of a million dollars. And the clients that wanted this console, because they said the one that I had at that time was not very good, they were also saying that they were not willing to keep paying the rates I was charging. So I kept trying to do the math in my head of how I was going to be able to reconcile paying a $30,000 a month loan, which basically means every day of the month you have $1,000 just to pay your loan back. And yet the people asking for this, clamoring for this gear, were not willing to even support this because they're saying they need to chew me down on the rate. And I started really looking at it and deciding that uh, if they wanted, these customers wanted to do that, well, they're going to be doing it at someone else's expense because I really didn't see an upside to this situation. And I felt that if they were willing to force people to spend three quarters of a million dollars and still complain that the rates were too high after we'd, we'd bought that kind of equipment, I felt that was the perfect opportunity for them to try that themselves and see how it worked. And I decided that, you know, the only choice at that time, if I didn't upgrade all my gear and didn't take these super heavy loans, is basically I was going to vegetate at the stage where I was not the state of the art anymore. And it was basically being condemned to a slow death. So instead of doing that, I decided that it was probably a smarter thing to do to completely abandon the idea of being in the recording, a commercial recording services business. And I decided to liquidate all the assets I had, which I felt were unnecessary, including the SSL console. I got rid of a, a lot of gear at that time and I sold it for a really good price. Two years later, I kind of uh, still had the studio space because I had signed a long-term lease and I had found tenants to 
rent the spaces from me. And I was actually making more money just having tenants in my studios that I was making when I was running them. And certainly I was much more carefree. By 2002, all my competitors had gone bankrupt or downscaled or been absorbed by larger corporate entities. I was completely out of the commercial studio business by then, for sure. But, and of course, this dreaded Pro Tools box that, you know, nobody wanted to put in their studios. Well, it kind of became the dominant force in the landscape. And, you know, I was still using Pro Tools for my personal projects or the things for my label. Even got to the stage where Pro Tools itself was far too expensive because, you know, to get a Pro Tools system, you needed to spend at least fifteen dollars to $25,000 to get a good, you know, 24-track system. And they, of course, brought in much cheaper versions that um, were able to satisfy the needs of uh, most home producers. And um, basically, it sort of led, you know, it was the early signs of this revolution that has completely transformed the landscape of audio recording into what we see today. You know, I was going to ask if you were disappointed about how all of this turned out in a way. I mean, you lived through this kind of golden era of studio technology, and then it seems in a way like it almost it almost ate itself. You know, there was all of this new digital technology coming out. Studios became unwieldy. Everything moved to computers. But I also wonder if, just based on kind of the way you finished it completely changed the paradigm of how music was made and recorded, but maybe led to a positive place, ultimately. Well, the thing is, and obviously this can go very deep because you can really go into like some more philosophical sort of approach and looking at what it really means, what it represents on many levels, whether it's on the standpoint of technology, whether it's on the standpoint of culture or this or that. But I fundamentally, the gear that's available today is more or less doing the same things that the gear was doing back in those days, except, of course, it can do a lot more, but also... There's another aspect to it, which was that back in those years, like say in the 80s, the gear was mostly discrete, which means that for one function, you had one button, one slider, one switch. Everything was available. It's like, you know, if you're the pilot in a plane in the cockpit, for everything you need to, you just push that button or turn that dial or, you know, look at that gauge. And it's all there in front of you. But suddenly, the paradigm becomes that nowadays, you have all of these things, but they're all, they're only available inside a software program 
That only allows you to look at one thing at a time and address one thing at a time. So by doing that, the people who design these new software, you know, tools, manage to save a great deal of money because they make their products affordable, more people are buying them, but they're cutting incredible corners by forcing the users to completely rethink the way their workflow is going. Whereas before you really had everything in front of you, you could just touch it, tweak it, and you'd be done. Now you have to go through these endless sequences of extra steps added because your software is cheap and because the designers have to make it work on your magical one-button iPhone, it forces you to make all these extra steps. By doing that, arguably, it could be said that instead of you remaining musical and your ideas and your thought process remaining focused on what you're trying to accomplish, your thought process get broken up into all the different steps that are necessary to navigate all these menus, all these clunky user interfaces that were not designed for convenience, but because the software designer wanted to save space and had the constraints of certain processors and menus that force you to navigate through all these sub-menus and options. And by the time you keep doing this repeatedly, there could be the theory that it breaks up your workflow to the point where you don't even remember what to do or what the idea is that you originally wanted to express. So, I mean, you're someone who's, you know, you talked about how early in your career you were able to advance by being quite methodical in the studio, but this sounds like it's would require so much method that you get extremely far away from it being a creative process, a musical process. Well, you know, by repetition, we all become accustomed to things, but on a fundamental level, it could be argued that there is something more immediate to, say, a 16-track console, like, say, maybe Lee Scratch Perry or King Tubby were using back in the mid-'70s in their little you know, bedroom studios in Jamaica. I mean, King Tubby's studio was supposed to be a bedroom, if I remember, but transformed and converted, you know, with a small vocal booth. But basically, small, easy-to-use technology, highly customized, all within hand's reach. But from what I understand, and even from my early days working, when we first did mixes, you know, you were at a 24-track console and everything, you were sitting down right in front of the console, you could reach and touch and manipulate most everything without having to do anything. It was right there. In other words, what we're looking at today is the equivalent of asking someone like a piano player to play like a Beethoven sonata on an iPhone where you have all the keys, but you only have access to like, say, five keys at a time. So you need to keep like holding down shift and pushing down submenus to play the different notes because the designer wanted to save space and money. So it's a little bit of a different thing here because even though you could say, well, we don't need classical piano players. We've heard enough Beethoven before. It's time for new, th new things. 
that's fair enough. But I believe that a lot of people who make music nowadays have not had the experience of all these tools where everything was all available. And that arguably was very expensive. I mean, it cost a lot of money to make a console with 64 modules. They're all identical. And each of the modules all had an EQ, all had a panning, all had a send, all had a fader, all had buses, all had switches, all had mic preamps and all these things. So it also consists of uh, more points of failure, more maintenance, expensive to, to keep it running. And, you know, but when you were faced with such a tool, you could really, from a mixing point of view, play the console all in real time without having to worry about, oh, did I forget page two on the sub-menu three because I was assigned to fader five that had the function brought to this screen that was the, oh, and by the time you keep being bogged down in those mechanics, I think it makes you think differently. Like Apple says, think different, right? Well, think different, even though it was their beautiful marketing campaign. I think there's a lot of real weird things. Like, say, if you were around in 1984, like I was buying Apple computers in those days, their commercial was this girl throwing a hammer at the screen of Big Brother, smashing, you know, the authoritarian control, yet, you know, we're faced today with Apple being the authoritarian person that controls who has the right to uh, upload things to their app store, you know, which apps will be allowed to be sold and so on and so forth. And the same way that we have people interface and usability gurus convincing us that having one button is much better than having multiple buttons. So what that does is for people who have not had the other way, they grow up with this new paradigm and that's the only way they know how to create and that's the only thing they have access to. So because of that, I certainly believe that even on a superficial level, it has profoundly changed the way that music makers and people approach all this because the tools that they are given to work with, unless they specifically seek out vintage tools and dedicated processors and synthesizers and consoles that are all completely discrete with one button for each control, they're all becoming more like software engineers than musicians. Are you impressed then that there is still very, very creative music being made through this new paradigm. I mean, thinking about artists who you've championed at your Deep Space Night, you know, digital mystics, dubstep stuff. I mean, this is music that's being made on computers, but I get the sense that you're fascinated by it. Well, I mean, as I said before, it's really up to the user to make these new programs, software, whatever, hardware devices do what they want them to do. That is no question that if I, if someone wants to have a traditional workflow and use, like, say, a modern software tool to do it, it can be done. It's just the steps and everything that's required to do it could be looked at a bit cumbersome. But all the same, there are also things in the new software programs that make it very easy so like in the case of dubstep, I mean, I'm sure that people using bass sounds from Massive 
is allowing them to create stuff that just might not have been possible with more traditional synthesizers. So, you know, being right in the thick of it, I think it's hard for me to be all... I, I don't want to sound like I'm being a negative Nancy about it. I use these software tools myself. And yes, there are people out there who are definitely astute enough to try to minimize the amount of interaction they have with the computers so that they could stay musical or whatever it is, even if it's a producer who... Um, you know, hires engineers and programmers and computer experts to do this for them so that he could stay focused on music part or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible to make this stuff, but I still think that overall, when I'm looking back at the slice of time that we're talking about, which is roughly 40 years, in general, even though Yes, there is a lot of music today that's incredibly creative and very, like, fascinating. I think that, at large, we, globally, when I say we, I mean most of us, cannot escape the fact that we have become subservient to this technological revolution and that the only way for us to express our ideas is through these pieces of software and that they have influenced the result. The main difference, really, if you want to look at it another way, is that back 30, 40 years ago, you were faced with a whole different ecology of specialized and very talented people when you had a recording session with live players, you're talking about people who all have spent 10, 15 years learning to play an instrument and practicing it endlessly. And not only just knowing to play their instrument, but knowing how to play together in real time so that they were able to improvise or move the beat a little forward in that section and bring it down in that section and have a lot of dynamic control. And you had people who came into the studio just to tune the drums or a piano tuner. All he did was make sure the piano was, if the piano player wanted it a little weird, he could do that too. Not just, you know, if he wanted microtonal tuning instead of just a normal 12-note scale, they could do that as well. You know, then they had sometimes for big sessions, a copyist whose job it was just to transfer the chart. And then they had another person called the arranger. All the arranger was doing was he would dream up all these lines and all these violins and horns and, you know, harps and other instruments that would be on top of, like, say, like a big song. They spend their entire lives arranging songs for people, writing string parts and Arguably, if you're transported back to today, I'm not saying that their customers and the people that want to hear the music they're making today want to hear those emotional lines on violins that only a, a professional arranger knew how to compose. But I'm just saying it's vastly changed because instead of this entire group of people who were, were like a, 
an incredibly well-oiled machinery, groups of people, like even studio staff, engineers, technicians, people who knew how to modify the gear to make it do stuff it wasn't supposed to do and so on and so forth. All that stuff all came together. That's why you have all these great Motown records. That's why you have all these great records of any era up to the time before the technology and the drum machines and computers came in because it meant that all these functions had to be performed by human beings and all these people had to work together to do it. So, of course, it was very expensive. But now, when you fast forward to today, none of that is necessary and you could just have one person sitting at an airport lounge complaining about the food and also writing a track on the side. The result of all that will certainly be vastly different from what might have been possible, say, a number of years ago, when the difference basically was there were all these expert people who were all hired to give their very best contribution to make a record together. And I'm not really trying to pass judgment on who's better or who's not better, but I'm saying it's vastly different. Now, of course, you could say, well, everything is in context, and as such, the context of today's consumers is they don't care. They don't want to hear the, the beautiful strings that make them cry and the vocal performances that are like finely arranged with like maybe a couple of harp glissandos in the background and all that. They just want to hear the beat. Well, everything now is engineered for maximum impact. It's got to be very, very loud. It's really got to slam on the radio, in the club. People probably aren't listening for those little variations that come from that level of musical knowledge, that sort of brain trust that would have been involved in a record well, 30, 40 years uh, what ago. What I'm talking about is more psychological, really. It's on an emotional level. There must be a reason why I see all these major motion pictures and they still keep using tracks from 1965 when arguably they could pick newer tracks to be in the movie. But for whatever reason, I truly believe that because these bands practiced day and night playing together and they were able to cohesively put musical forms together that were far more organic, had much more something undefinable about it, but at times like Earth, Wind and Fire or people like that could be like really quasi-magical. I think all of that has been eliminated out of the equation. I mean, not to say that every live band was good. There were some awful live bands just as well. But I think the customers, the consumers today, are not expecting that. They just want to hear, you know, a good two-bar loop of some drum beat and some basic melodies. There used to be a time like a while back where I started realizing that most music I was hearing for clubs were basically intros that were extended for eight minutes and there was never any development there was never any chord progressions or you know sense that it was like you know there's just a lot of fluff a lot of whooshes a lot of drum rolls and build-up effects and dramatic drops and all that but basically if it stays in the same chord you don't have to know music anymore but if you keep making music like that and feeding it to people, then the people who are supporting you will not demand it because they've been conditioned 
to want to react to that one chord kind of music. So if you really extrapolate and think of where, you know, from the curve, from the sort of picture I'm painting, let's go forward another 10 to 15 years in the future. You could argue that everything is becoming so streamlined and simplified and quantifiable, so to speak. I personally don't think that it's far-fetched to say that within 10 to 15 years, this sort of music making, like the sort of predictable, you know, one-note melody, not arranged kind of tracks that are for club consumptions, will not even be made by people anymore. They will be made by software agents or machines, or maybe you have an app in the cloud that you just tell it, oh, I want this, oh, I want that kind of vibe. This is the feeling I'm looking for, and the app in the cloud will make it for you because it's all become so perfunctory. There's no magic associated with putting together series of events that happen over time because that's really what music is. If you look at it, music is mathematics and a timeline and stuff happening at different points. And I'm feeling like at least for that part of music, which has become like in the context of clubs, so unbelievably predictable, self-referential and kind of, I don't think it's run dry. There's obviously, as you say yourself, good examples sometimes of people that completely take it out. Even, you know, though people, the purists don't like to talk about Skrillex, I think that he's, he's quite, he's accomplished quite a lot with the stuff he's done. And there's always going to be people out there that obviously have the ability and the knowledge to go a little bit beyond that, which, you know, for fairness sake, I was really talking about for the majority of the users out there. I mean, obviously there are tons of live bands out there today that are gigging for audiences that appreciate live music and live playing and all that. But, you know, whether we want to sort of contextualize what we were discussing, obviously it's within the realm of club music since a lot of work that I'm known for is related to clubs. I mean, you're someone who has been with club music really since since the beginning of it and have sort of watched it develop through the years. I mean, do you see any kind of a bright side with this? Honestly, and just for the sake of being controversial, I think that music has already been commoditized a long time ago even though you and I might not realize it consciously. I think that creative people always exist in every field. And geniuses and people who really make a difference always exist, no matter what era, what area of culture we are looking at. That's just how it is, and it's the law of numbers and statistics. The, you know, with six whatever billion people on the planet, there's of course going to be a few bright minds in there somewhere. But I personally feel that creativity has really migrated away from music to other, other areas. For example, for me, the bright creative minds right now are probably more in gaming designing virtual 3D virtual environments, you know, designing, you know, levels and 
ways to put people into immersive situations where instead of watching the movie, now you're in the movie. You are part of the movie. And with virtual reality technologies and other sensory, you know, input points that are feeding you, I think that music, you know, is a part of gaming. But as such, I would say that in my opinion, all the big money and all the big creative minds are doing things like that because back in those years i think it made a lot more sense to be a musician you could practice you could become really good in your own way you could make your own identity and do something truly unique be you know you could become sly and the family stone or you could become you know you can become a virtuoso like stevie ray vaughan you know but with all of this taking place, I think that talent, it always tries to find areas where it can do stuff and reach the maximum amount of people. I would, I would argue that instead of music making right now, the talent has migrating to software making. In other words, now that the phones are allegedly so smart, there needs to be someone to make them smart. That's, in my opinion, a much bigger challenge and much more interesting activity to design software for people to use than to be the users of the software who just go, oh, 808-909, cool. Well, that was great. You know, 808-909 had its time 25 years ago, 20 years ago, but, and it will still have its time 20 years from now, no doubt, but... See, the difference between, like, say, maybe even the early house pioneers is with Acid and, you know, the TB303 being sort of a rebel box that was not used for what it was intended to be and all that. I mean, I, mean, I guess, theoretically, there's nothing against the idea of using an app for something it wasn't meant to, to be used for, but I see less and less chances of these, these happy accidents to happen. If we could kind of sum up in a way about this whole right. big conversation we've been having about technology and music and where they intersect, it's like at some point, well, technology used to push music forward and it used to be in the service of making music better in a way. And at some point it sort of switched over into the service of making things easier, which resulted in the music sort of being less good. Well, that's a choice that each user or music maker has to make. Basically, what I'm trying to tell you is that from my perspective, if you're asking me to look back, and this is how humanity evolves. We've gone through some very, very spectacular leap forward moments but I think none has ever been bigger than the way we're able to use computing and software to integrate into our everyday lives. And that also goes for music. Even though right now, when we're looking at a smartphone, <laughs> it's still something that we hold in our hand and it's external. Again, within those 10 to 15 year period of time I was talking about, in my mind, it's a, 
obvious and inevitable that it's going to become a wearable device and that it's going to become a device that you consider part of you. It's not going to be an external device anymore. It's going to be augmented. It's going to be you augmented. And that is going to be a data bank. It's going to be a head-up display that overlays what you see with extra data. It's going to be so many things where you can instantly reference networked intelligence. And you could also think, well, it's going to uh, give people that are talented enough to dream up new apps. It could also mean uh, music making on the fly with other people wirelessly. You're just in the room together. You were through the cloud and you're making music in real time together and this and that. But really, it's very difficult to try to qualify. And I, I'm really taking pains here to make sure that no one misunderstands. I'm not saying that now is better than before. I'm not saying that before was better than now. And I'm not saying that the future will be better than what we're dealing with today. I'm not saying any of the above. All I'm saying is I cannot help but notice these things. And I feel that at the very least, and the purpose of me using this conversation was to try to bring that into focus because part of noticing these things is actually helping us define our own identities, who we are what we stand for, what we like. I mean, there's a lot of people today that I'm very amazed. I'm going to these places because I, I use Tractor when I DJ and, you know, I've been DJing using Tractor for 12 years. There are places where I go, I see flyers on the wall and says, oh, we're going to do a vinyl only party. And I'm like, wow, this is cool. I mean, obviously if people care enough about vinyl, to you know, think that it's the most important part of what the party is about, then fair enough, you know, that's good. However they want to do it. A lot of people in the recording industry that seem attached to the idea of having those old, fully discrete consoles. I hear of people doing uh, one inch, two track mastering on modified tape decks where they have custom heads made so they have twice as much room on the tape. You know, there are people, I, I forget, is it Steve Albini or people like that, that really champion using all analog recording techniques and not recording with the click track and doing this and doing that. And, you know, obviously there are all sorts of options available and certain people will define themselves by staying true to this sort of more traditional, you know, approach to whether it's playing or recording but at the same time as for me it's obvious through all that I've said that I've constantly kind of been a bit at that fringe forefront wave that pushes forward with technology and I think it would be a danger if somehow I didn't kind of take a moment to like step back and try to understand what it implies what it means for me. I, I'm not even presumptuous enough to try to think of what it means for other people, but just even as, as little as myself. And I, I feel that most of us aren't making the effort to do that, to, to actually stop for a moment and look at this app you're using and, and going, am I controlling the app or is the app controlling me? I do not have those answers. 
But I think it should be a healthy and necessary step for you to function properly in a world that's increasingly dominated by interconnected, you know, and computer systems. We're at the dawn of artificial intelligence. And if we completely relinquish control of all that now, I can only imagine how much more we are going to in the future once some of these systems might have a primitive way of actually making a lot of decisions for us. I just think that um, somehow through what I do today, there are certain parts that I'm not willing to compromise about. I mean, there are ways, of course, coming back to what I was, and I keep hammering, that you can use the software to make it do exactly what you want in the way you want it. But again, most people don't think that far into it. They just let the software kind of take control and let it do its thing however it was programmed to be. And I think that's the only danger. I just wish, you know, people were somehow still with all this hoopla and all these bells and whistles able to stay connected to what their true identity is, think for themselves what, you know, part is the human part and what part is the software part.